If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, that's where we're going to be, and that's where we've been in for the past few weeks as we have been in this journey unpacking this new series called Blessed, looking at what God's definition of blessing is. And uh, we've been breaking down the longest sermon uh, by Jesus ever recorded in Scripture. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And within this entire sermon, he's unpacking truths about what the kingdom of God looks like compared to what the kingdom of the world that we live in operates and functions in. And so if you're just joining us, let me give you a quick synopsis of one, one sentence that will summarize really how the kingdom of God operates. And it really is this. The kingdom of God is us doing the exact opposite of what we instinctively feel in specific situations. What we naturally will do to respond or to react in a certain situation, the kingdom of God usually often is us acting opposite of that instinct. And so for us, we have to understand that in order for us to experience the kingdom of God in our lives or for the kingdom of God to come alive in us, we need to die daily to the kingdom of self. We got to die to ourselves in order for us to experience the life-giving power that the kingdom of God offers you and I. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48 is where we're going to be. And let's just get this out of the way off the top. You're not going to like this message. Okay, and don't get mad at the messenger. Get mad at the word of God because it's God's word that will bring transformation to us. And we can't just like the, the good things about the scripture. We also have to wrestle with the difficult things of scripture because that's how our lives are transformed. So... Let's just buckle up and get ready for what God is going to speak to our hearts tonight. <clears throat> so Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 says this. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to your neighbor and, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take you uh, and take you your, take your shirt, hand over your coat uh, your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks of you, and and do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. And this is where it gets difficult. Verse forty-three. You have heard that it was said, "Love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I tell you, love your enemies. What? And pray for those who persecute you. What? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Here's how he responds to all of us. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? are not even tax collectors, and these were known as the, the most prominent sinners in this time, aren't even they doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans or people don't, who don't know God do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want to preach to us a message from this premise. Opposition or opportunity. Every situation that you and I will face in life can be seen or viewed 
through this lens. We can see it as an oppor opposition or how the youth would say ops, right? You got them ops in your life. Or it's an opportunity and we decide how we're going to respond by how we see this situation. So if you're ready for the word, say yeah. yeah. If you want God to speak, say oh yeah. oh yeah. Come on, let's pray tonight. God, we thank you for your word. Let this word do what the word does best, bring change and transformation to our minds, to our hearts, and to our spirits. God, one word from you can change us from the inside out, and that's what we want, God. We want you to do your work so that we can leave here better than we came. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that is soft, open and receptive for everything that you want to deposit into us tonight. We pray that the seed of this word will bear a harvest that will bring character, but also life transformation, not only from us and in us, but to those around us. So do that work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Opposition or opportunity. I want you to go back with me to my seventh grade year in middle school. And I already us know just middle school is just an awkward phase in anybody's life. How many of us want to go back and just like, oh, middle school was such a great season. No, it was just an awkward season. Uh, and for me, I was transitioning from elementary school, and I went to St. Louis, which is a, a private school. And so from seventh grade uh, to graduation, I was at this new private school. And so for me, it was like really entering university because I've never, it was like me kind of exploring life at this new school, and I had to catch the bus and do all these things. And so it was like a nerve-wracking thing for me. And part of going to the school, we needed to wear a specific uniform. So they gave us shirts to wear, but we needed to buy slacks and dress shoes for our daily uniform that we had to wear. And so my mom took me to get uh, some pants and to get some shoes, and I picked out a nice pair of shoes. It was like uh, all-leather croc. It was kind of like a dressy dress shoes that you can kind of slide your feet in. Super comfortable. It was like a, a, a dark brown kind of a shoe, and I thought it was pretty cool. And so I'm wearing my shoe, going to class, and really liking the whole outfit because you don't have to choose an outfit for school when you have a uniform. You just wake up and throw on something, which was so easy uh, for me. And so we had PE, and uh, we had to change into our PE uniform. And so after PE was done, I'm getting ready to uh, go home, and uh, a pretty big classmate comes up to me, and uh, uh, I've never met him before, but he was huge. And he goes, uh, Silly, what size you? <laughs> and um, I was kind of like, you know, I'm nervous because I've never had a conversation with this guy. And I told him, um, about an eight, eight and a half. He's like, oh, same size, same size. Uh, can sample, sample your shoes. And so I was like, oh, oh okay. Uh, so I let him try on my shoes. He's like, oh, it's, it feels, it feels good. Okay, I'm going to stop. That's, that's enough accent for us for tonight. <clears throat> so he asked me, can I, can, I borrow, can I borrow your shoes? I have a dinner tonight, and I want to wear your shoes. And so I said, you know, are you going to give it back to me? He said, yeah, tomorrow, when I see you, tomorrow. So, you know, I kind of was hesitant, but I said, okay. And I let him borrow my shoes. And I'm thinking I'm going to get the shoe back the next day. And the next day came, and my shoe didn't come back. And so I'm thinking, you know, the next, the next day after that, I'm just waiting for my shoes to be returned. And every day that I asked him about the shoes, he had some sort of excuse for it. Uh, and long story short, what 
initially started as him borrowing the shoe became a permanent situation where he just took my shoe. But looking back on it now, it was probably the most polite way for someone to steal my things from me. Like, he did it so nicely. Like, he didn't, like, beat me up or anything. He just asked for it nicely, and I genuinely gave it to him. And that was the last time I saw that pair of shoes in my life. And here's what would happen. Every day after that, I would see him wearing the shoes, and what would happen in my heart is I would get angry at him. And I couldn't do anything because this guy is way bigger than me, so I just got mad internally. You know what I'm saying? How many of us are imploders? That's what I am. I don't do things out loud. I just kind of explode on the inside. And so I'm getting mad at him in my heart. And he's like, I stole my shoes. But he did it so nicely. And so I was getting mad at him, and I would get mad every time I saw that. And it got me thinking about this message that we're going to receive and embrace tonight is that there are people in our lives that maybe not have stolen our shoes, but they have taken things from us. Maybe they've taken our innocence. Maybe they've taken our purity. Maybe they've taken our emotions. Maybe they've done things that would take something from our lives. And the longer you live life, the more opportunities you're going to have to encounter people in situations where you're going to get hurt. The reality of getting hurt is inevitable in life. How we respond to these specific situations when we get hurt, that's what God is trying to encourage us with tonight. This idea of loving our enemies is a tough pill to swallow. And for you and I, in order for us to fully operate in the kingdom of God, we have to understand not only conceptually what this means, but practically live it out with our lives. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to do through this passage of scripture. He's giving us an opportunity to respond when inside of us we want to react. So first point in your notes is this. We need to choose to do right even when we are wronged. We got to do right even though wrong things were done to you and I. So here's what it says. You've heard it. what it said. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. We're going to break this down. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. And give to the one who asks and do not turn, turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So this idea of eye for eye and tooth for tooth, let's break that down. God gave this law in the Old Testament through Moses as the standard for restitution when we experience a wrong in our lives. He's giving us a baseline on how we handle offenses practically, but the goal of how we respond was always meant to bring harmony within social interactions within the nation of Israel. So the principle that you and I can apply to our lives today from this Standard is this, the punishment should always fit the crime. So if someone wrongs you by taking an eye, the only right response or restitution for that will be to have a matching eye in that situation. But how many of us know that the world standard is not like that? The world standard takes that but also one-ups it. So in the world standard, not only if someone does something to you to take your eye, not only do you take their eye back, but you also take their leg how many of us know that that's what the world would say? You got to one-up them. 
to right the situation. It's not about getting even. It's getting the upper hand in that situation. So that's how the world will operate. And so Jesus is understanding that's how the cultural norm is at that time. And he's saying that a part of my kingdom is doing and living complete opposite to how the world lives. So Jesus is saying his kingdom is not about retaliation. It's about reconciliation. God's kingdom, it is not about blasting people. It's about blessing people. That's what the kingdom of God looks like for you and I. Easy to preach, harder to live. And for us, we need to understand that within the kingdom of God, retaliation is not a sign of strength. It really is a sign of weakness. We're operating under the control of the other person if we allow their actions to constantly control our lives. So he said the kingdom, people in the kingdom operate differently. So he gives us four examples on how we can do it right. The first example talks about insults. Turn the other cheek. So he's not saying that we allow ourselves to continue to get abused or insulted. That would be keep giving your same cheek to that person. So he's not condoning abusive situations. If you're in an abusive situation right now, not only verbally, emotionally, but even physically, Jesus is not saying stay in that situation. In fact, the most loving thing that you can do for yourself and for the other person is to remove yourself from that situation. So he's not talking about being abused. He's talking about how we can practically respond to insults in our lives. So turning the other cheek means this. We're giving them an opportunity to see a new side of us. You hurt me on one side. I'm going to turn away from that and give you an opportunity to start fresh in the relationship. That's what turning the other cheek means. It's like a mulligan in golf. We're going to do this over. I'm going to give you an opportunity for us to start fresh in this relationship. So that's what turning the other cheek is. Then he starts talking about lawsuits, if someone sues you and takes your shirt. So if someone claims to have something against you, our reaction will be, I got to lawyer up and get after you. I'm going to come back. You sue me. I'm going to sue you and get Johnny Cochran to be on my team, and we're going to take you to the cleaners. That's what our natural reaction would be. But Jesus is saying this. If someone is claiming something against you, not just give them the shirt, Give them the coat as well. So what is he saying? Don't just give them what they want. Give them something extra for good measure. Here's why. We win by losing. What he's saying is this. You might lose practical things, but that only gives you an opportunity to win the person and win the relationship. So what Jesus is valuing more than our stuff and our possessions is people. He's saying the priority in our lives We can always get stuff back, but we can never win people back. So let's make people the priority in our relationships. Why? Because people are invaluable to God. So he's saying, if it means you lose your stuff, great. If that gives you an opportunity to win the person. Then he talks about duties and customs, going one mile. So under Roman law, which is what the people of God were in during this time, a Roman citizen had the right to ask any non-Roman citizen to help them to carry their stuff for up to a mile. 
So a mile to where they need to go and a mile back to where you need to go. So we're talking about two miles here. And so imagine if you're on your way to Pita Hut to meet your friends back in the day. Pita Hut, you get it? All right. <clears throat> Let that settle, right? And someone asks you on your way to the Pita Hut, hey, can you help me take some stuff to my house? You would, by law, be required to take their stuff with them a mile and come back. How many of us would know that would be an inconvenience to your life during that time? So what Jesus is saying is this. Don't just go the one mile. Go the extra mile. Take it two. What is he saying? Use that as an opportunity to serve the person. That's where we get the phrase, go the extra mile. Came from Jesus. He's basically saying this. Don't just do what they're asking of you doing. Go above and beyond to serve them. And when we do this well, it's helping us in our heart to value the authority over our lives. Last thing he's talking about, generosity. If anyone asks you for something, for finances, we give it. And here's how we give it. We give it not expecting them to ever return it back to us. We're giving it out of complete generosity. If they return it to us, great. If not, we never wanted it back in the first place. It was an opportunity for us in the kingdom of God to exhibit generosity. Great to preach. Harder to live. Come on, somebody. You're looking at me like, yeah, this is tough. I know. I know. But this is what the kingdom of God is all about. This is where the rubber meets the road in our faith. We need to go from knowing God mentally to living like God practically in our lives. And the first way that we can do that is choosing to do right even when we are wronged in our lives. Second point in our notes is this. To love God is also... To love our enemies. You have heard that it was said, love your enemies and love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, so there's authority in this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So here's what it's saying. Love your neighbor was a command in Scripture. Hate your enemy was something that the teachers of the law added to Scripture because it felt right for them at that time. So for them, a neighbor is anybody who would reciprocate things for them in their life. Yes, I can love them. So conceptually, anyone who's not a part of my crew, I can consider them an enemy, which allows me the right and the freedom to hate them. That's what he's speaking to. The common mindset in the, in the land at that time was, it's great to love your enemies or love your neighbor, but it's also better to hate your enemies. And how many of us know that's the world that we're living in today? If you think the same way that I think and you believe the same things that I, I believe, we're on the same team. If you vote for the same person I voted for, we're cool. But anybody who's different or has opposing views to me, we would consider them to be what? Our enemy. And that's why we need this message now more than ever because we're living in such a divisive time in our nation. And we need this as an opportunity for God's word to come alive through you and I. So he's saying... The kingdom of God operates differently. We love people who are difficult to love. So he says enemies, plural, which means there's always going to be more than one enemy that you and I face on a daily basis. So an enemy is anyone who is hostile or antagonistic towards us. So it could be someone who supports a, diff a different political party, maybe someone from a different race or ethnicity, or simply said, 
difficult people that we don't like being around could be defined as our enemies. So right now, I know for a fact that there are faces and names of people popping in your mind right now as I speak. And whoever that is that you would consider to be defined as your enemy, Jesus is saying, those are the people that he's causing us to stretch to love. Ouch. Because we all got difficult people. G.K. Chesterton says this, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and to love our enemies probably because they're generally the same people. Think about that. It's usually the people closest to us that oftentimes inflicts the greatest harm in our lives, right? So our neighbor oftentimes acts and operates as an enemy, and this is who he's talking to us to love. Any bad relationships in our lives is an opportunity for us to love people. So this word here, love, in the Greek is agapeo or agape love, which is based on choices rooted in values, irrespective of emotions, appetites, or affections. And this is the gospel. To love people who make themselves difficult to love. How many of us, by a show of hands, have people in our lives that are difficult to love? Don't raise your hand if they're sitting next to you, okay? <laughs> and I say that because here's an important lesson from marriage. Marriage is oftentimes God's way of building us the character within our hearts to love difficult people. That's what marriage is. God training us to love difficult people because every single person has a little bit of good in them and every single person has a little bit of bad in them. And when that feeling fades after you get married, how many of us know that your spouse can oftentimes become your enemy? And I'm not talking about my spouse, but maybe your spouse. Right? Can we be honest in church? That the person that we love the most can oftentimes bring out the worst in us, right? And so what he's saying here as far as marriage goes is this, that marriage is not only primarily to make us happy, its primary purpose is to make us holy. So if you're sitting next to your spouse, turn to him and say, thank you for making me more like Jesus. Because that's why God brought them into your life. It's called character development 24-7. Thank you, hon. You're the best. I look and act more like Jesus because of you. But if we're honest, we all have a list of things that we love in our lives, right? If I were to ask you what you love, you could give me your list. My top three is God, my wife and son, and sleep. Those are the things that I love in my life. What Jesus is saying to all of our lists that we have that we love, that we need to also include our enemies on that list. That's what he's saying. That the same way that we would treat our top three, we would have to give that same type of energy to the people who are difficult to love. And here's how he encourages us to start loving them. He says, here's the way that you can practically love them. Start by praying for them. And here's what prayer does. In your attempts to pray for a person, oftentimes we say we've forgiven them with our minds. But when we pray for them, it really reveals if we've forgiven them in our heart. Because if you find yourself struggling to not just pray for them, because here's how we would pray. 
God, I pray that you would get them. He's not talking about vengeance prayers because we do that pretty easy. God, get them. Blast them, Lord. Those come second nature to us. What he's saying is one-up your prayer life to be not only just praying uh, kindness to them, but he's saying talking about praying a blessing over their lives. So our prayer should be not wanting God to get even with them, but God to bring your best in their lives. That's the prayers that he wants us to pray. And if we find ourselves wrestling with doing that, it reveals to us that maybe we haven't fully forgiven that person. So he says, before you do anything else with that person, start with prayer because prayer will reveal where your heart is towards that person. And here's what I know to be true in my life and oftentimes in your lives as well. Prayer may or may not change that person, but it will always change our hearts. So prayer is less about them and more about us, allowing God to work in our hearts so that we look more like him. Third point in our notes is this. Go beyond the world's standards by reflecting God's standards. So here's God's standards. He causes his son to rise on evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? If you only greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So he's breaking us down to see how he responds to you and I. Do you think God only sends rain and sun on specific groups of people? No, he's saying, I give that to everybody. There's a general grace that God allows all of us, whether you've known him for years or whether you are have no idea who God is, your, ex uh, your existence is experiencing the grace that he's given to all of us. It's called common grace. So the sun rising and setting is common grace. The rain that is poured out from the heavens, usually after you wash your car, that's from God, right? So what he's saying is, is I am not specific and selective on who I give my grace to, so people within my kingdom cannot be selective and specific with who we give our love to. So if he loves everyone unconditionally, a part of being in his kingdom is having that same love to other people. You and I, we live in a transactional world. You do something for me, I do something to you. That's the world standards. God is saying move from transactional love to unconditional love. Whether you respond to me in the way that I want, does not have a matter in my decision to choose to love you, regardless of how you receive that love. Now, it's easier to love people who reciprocate. That's easy, but maturity in the faith is taking it a step further, loving people irregardless of how they respond to our generosity in our lives. That's what he's inviting us to do. How many of us would believe that our world would be different if everyone who considered themselves to be a believer lived this way. I believe that our world would be radically different. We're in the NBA playoffs right now, and I don't have a team, but if your team is in the playoffs, good for you. My team is usually the one who wins, so that I can celebrate all the time. I never have a down year, because I celebrate with the winners. Because in the kingdom, all we do is win, anyways. 
<clears throat> but it reminded me of a game that happened last year. It was between the Grizzlies and the Thunder. And usually, uh, if you're the home team, you are invited to wear a lighter color jersey, and any uh, visiting team or away team, they would be required to wear a darker colored jersey. But on this particular day, there was a uniform mixed up. Both teams came out wearing white jerseys. I think we have a picture of what that looks like. Both teams, 10 players on the court all wearing white. Now we got two teams playing, but because they're all wearing the same color uniform, you couldn't tell who was on whose team because they're all wearing the same thing. And I thought about this game and I thought about the world that we're living in today. I thought about us as a church that in our attempts to make a difference in the world, too often you and I are wearing the same color uniform as the world, so we just blend in. We're reacting like the world. We're living like the world. We're treating people like the world does. We're living under the world's standards, and we're frustrated and asking God, why aren't we making a difference? In order for us to make a difference, we have to live different. That's what allows light to shine bright. We live different by looking different than the world. God has given us, a part of his kingdom, brand new jerseys and uniforms to wear. We got to make sure every single day that we're wearing the right jerseys. Because in our flesh, sometimes we want to pick up the other person's jersey and wear and live like the world. But God is saying every single day, if you're part of my kingdom, you don't just represent yourself anymore. You represent our heavenly father and we got to make sure that we make decisions that reflect the team that we're on. Because how we respond reveals who we really serve. We can say that we're on God's team, but how we respond in specific situations will really determine what team we're on. So in order for us to make a difference, we need to be different. Miroslav Volv says this, if you take love your enemy out of Christianity, you've unchristianed the Christian faith. The whole essence of Christianity that makes it different from all other religions is founded on this idea of how we treat people who don't deserve our love. So the Bible defines how we can do this. Romans 12 says this, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with Good. This idea of heaping fiery coals on a person's head was a Jewish metaphor. And when we do this, it's basically saying that one or two things will happen. That that person would be awakened to the gravity of their mistake that they've made. It's like someone throwing cold water on them. They'll have a fresh revelation that they did wrong and that they would repent. Or that when judgment comes, God would have a conversation with this person and say, you didn't respond right when I was exhibiting love and kindness through my people to you. Then the vengeance comes from God. That's why the Bible says this, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We leave the vengeance up to him. And our obedience is to always respond in love, trusting him with the outcome. Because God will deal with all injustices. It will be dealt with either on the cross through his son or the person who inflicted the harm would have to deal with that themselves in hell. There will always be a judgment, but we make sure that only God will be the one determining that judgment. We respond with love because that's our part 
of being in this kingdom. So here's what I want to encourage us with. Loving our enemies makes us, more, make us, makes us look more like Jesus and less like our enemies. That's what he's saying. When we love our enemies, we look, we look more like Jesus, one, but the more we look like Jesus, the less we look like our enemies. And we're living in a world where there's so many enemies out there that that's what they look like. And Jesus is inviting us to look more like him. And we do that by responding in love and responding as if we're a part of his kingdom. Last point in our notes is this as we come to a close. We are most like God when we respond like him. Be perfect, the Bible says. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. This word perfect is this idea of being whole. So he's not talking about being sinless. He's talking about being whole in the kingdom. So what that means for you and I is this. The closer we are to God, the more we are filled with his grace and his strength and the more he empowers us to have the characteristic of God in how we relate to other people. Meaning this, the closer we get to God, the more we look like God. We can't love other people on our own strength. If you tried, you realize that it's frustrating because our love is conditional. It's limited. That's why we need to connect ourselves to an unlimited source so that through his strength, we're able to love in the capacity that he's calling us to. My son just celebrated his first birthday the other day. One year. And one of the best compliments someone has ever told me before is this. Your son looks exactly like you. And my first instinct was, I hope so. I helped create this guy. You know what I'm saying? But then I also thought about, that's really a great compliment, that he looks like me. And I thought about the greatest compliment that you and I can give our Heavenly Father is when the world looks at us and they say, man, you look like your Father in heaven. That they don't see us. They see the God that we serve through us. Now, all of us in our lives, we have situations and faces and people that we've dealt with or currently dealing with and a variety of offenses that we've gone through and experienced in our lives that maybe are making it difficult to do this. And I want to share with you a story on screen of a person who probably experienced one of the most difficult things a mother could ever experience is someone through their reckless decision taking the life of their very own child. And how she responded is an encouragement to us of what the kingdom of God looks like. So take a look at this story on screen. Not many convicts consider themselves blessed, but this guy does, and for good reason. He's getting out way early. It's gonna be like being on borrowed time, you know, because I know that I, I should still be in prison because the justice system said that I should still be in prison. In 2003, Eric Smallridge of Tallahassee, Florida was found guilty of two counts DUI manslaughter. While driving at twice the legal limit for alcohol, he hit a car carrying Lisa Dixon and Megan Napier, both 20. They died instantly. He got 22 years for the crime, which sounded just about right to Renee Napier, Megan's mom. I felt like our system had served us well and justice had been served. I definitely felt that. But a few years later, a woman came forward and asked the judge to reduce Eric's sentence in half. She claimed Eric was truly sorry for what he'd done and deserved leniency, and the judge obliged, partly because of what she said, but mostly because of who she was. Do you realize what a gift you gave this guy? 
I do. Renee's 180 began with the single turn of a single phrase. First at sentencing and later in a letter, Renee told Eric she'd forgiven him, even though at the time she hadn't, not really. At trial, Eric had actually been pretty defensive and unapologetic. I could hate him forever. And, and the world would tell me that I have a right to do that. But it's not going to do me any good, and it's not going to do him any good. I would grow old and bitter and angry and hateful. Forgiveness is that important? If you want to heal. I think, in my opinion, forgiveness is the only way to heal. And she says it did heal her, almost as much as it healed him. It was like a burden. It was, it was a, a weight off my chest. I no longer had to hide behind this facade. Following the forgiveness, Eric apologized repeatedly and profusely in private and public to the families of both girls. Eventually, Lisa's parents forgave him too, which only inspired Eric to atone even more. Please welcome Eric Smallred. While still in custody, Eric agreed to speak at high schools with Renee telling kids, as only they can, the consequences of drinking and driving. Chains, shackles, lost hopes and dreams, broken dreams. They both plan to continue doing this even after Eric's release. I'm going to go to wherever we need to go to spread this message because I don't believe it's about us anymore. And there's going to be healing and there's going to be um, good things from here on out, you know. This week, Eric Smallridge was released from custody into the arms of his parents. His mom, so grateful, she actually hugged the guard first. It's a happy ending that would have never existed without forgiveness. Because of that one powerful word, tonight he is free. And so is she. The thing I love about that story is that it was her first step of kindness that eventually led to his repentance. She initiated. She was the recipient of his wrong for choice, which led to her hurt, but she took the first step to initiate kindness, and it was that kindness that eventually led to his repentance. And I think about how she responded, and that is really a model for us on how we need to respond. But before we respond, I want to reveal to you how God responded to us in our lives. Romans 5.10 says this, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, here's the kicker, while we, you and I, were still his what? His enemies. We will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So at one point in all of our lives, this scripture is saying that we were considered to be enemies of God. So how did God treat us as his enemy. He called us. Come on. He pursued us. He loved us. He didn't wait for us to come to him to love us, but it was his love that drew us to him. Not only is he, did he love us, but he's constantly and currently loving us. He's giving us a hope and a future, a purpose and a destiny. That's how God treated us, who were once his enemies, in our lives. So it's only right for us to be recipients of that love to pass it on to other people in our lives. We can't give away what we first haven't received from God first. This walk of faith is always a receiving of something from God in order for us to give that away to other people. 
So God treated us as his enemies with kindness, with grace. He initiated. He took the first step, which means he empowers us to do the same for the people who've hurt us in our lives. Walking this out is difficult. But you know what's more difficult than trying to love our enemies? It's living a life filled with hate. That's more difficult. To constantly wake up with this burden and this heaviness every single day is not the life that God has for you and I. That's more difficult. So we have to choose which path of difficulty do we want to pursue. A life of love or a life filled with hate. You and I choose. Opposition or opportunity. What will you decide today? Let's choose love. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. Lord, let this word come alive in all of our hearts. Let it be more than just something that sounds good. Let it be the reality of the choices we make and the life that we live. Lord, we pray that you would empower us to live this out. Lord, I know in a room of this size that there's offenses on all kinds of levels. And I'm not saying that this is an easy thing, but it's only possible through your grace and through your strength. So tonight we first allow you to do what you do best in all of our lives, to give us the grace and the strength needed, because it always comes from you. So we posture ourselves for, do you, for you to do your work and your best work in us, first and foremost, so that we can be your hands and feet in this world around us. We thank you for your love in your name that we pray. Amen and amen. Let's all stand tonight. How many of us know that the most powerful name on this earth is the name of Jesus? What we're going to do tonight is we're going to declare his name over everything in our lives, and that's including the people and the faces and the names of other people that you would consider to be your enemy. Above all of those names is the name of Jesus. And so we're going to make our attention and our focus zeroed in on the name of Jesus. So let's sing this tonight.